0: Hi this is Isaac Arthur, welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. okay hopefully this worked this time for those of you who tuned in right as we got started we had a little bit of a technical glitch getting started and it kind of messed up our ability to uh go so we went and pulled back out of that i gather we did go live for a minute or two for those of you who are catching this after the fact, there was a short uh, mess up there so uh we're gonna get started in just a moment here for those of you who did not know we skipped the live stream last month and uh this is our first month back in the new studio and a bit of a rush setup because i wasn't originally planning to uh do a live stream in may because i was planning to be at the international space development conference down in dallas but that got canceled because of the virus so as we go through today uh we're going to have uh, my wife sarah reading the questions off to me as we go and uh we'll have me repeating them back just in case we uh don't have a good enough mic set up because again we're just getting started with the studio i should probably also mention as we get going that uh We did hit 500,000 subscribers this month, and uh, I just want to thank all of you for joining me for that. We'll talk about that a little bit later uh, for the show break, but uh, it was pretty neat to do, and there's a fun balloon up celebrating the occasion that my wife got me. So we'll go ahead and get started with questions. I assume we are actually live now. Uh, The first one is from Albert Jackson.
1: Albert Jackson says, First, congratulations on your marriage last month and awesome studio so far. Did you see the launch yesterday? What advances in entertainment do you expect to occur in the near future besides VR?
0: I didn't catch the launch live yesterday. I caught clips of it afterwards, but that really was a great occasion to actually see the astronauts coming back up again. And it's nice to see SpaceX. Um, if I ever mentioned, SpaceX, when it first got started, I was kind of pessimistic about their chance on because we've had so many plans for having private commerce in space but very few of them have actually worked out and uh, I'm very glad to say a decade later that I'm happy to eat my hat on that one and uh, just congratulations to them for getting that rocket up there so uh, another good success they've had plenty not without setbacks but a lot more successes than we could have uh, really hoped for a decade ago the next
1: question <clears throat> is from Mike's play.
0: the question is uh what advances in entertainment do you expect to occur in the near future besides VR um and for entertainment, that's always a tricky one because it kind of depends on um, which, uh, which pathway civilization chooses to go. If you've got very good virtual reality, um, obviously that gives you all sorts of options for entertainment. Um, but for the non-immersive kind, I'd say much more interactive stuff. You know, in terms of like video games, more you're not going to get your, and this, this goes into education too. You wouldn't get your education by watching a documentary or watching a TV show, you know, watching a, uh, a period drama. You'd probably get one in, in the virtual, virtual reality sense by interacting with it. And that does not have to be in VR, it could be more of a video game setup. I say a lot of what I know of European history comes from various uh, video games like Paradox Interactives, uh, Europa Universalis. But um, in terms of other entertainment, I, you know, we're going to keep seeing more sports, more games, more things like that. And uh, hopefully, those won't all be immersive in virtual reality or social media. But uh, trying to predict the video game trends, trying to predict entertainment trends is always a missed bag. At the very best, it's iffy. The
1: next question is from Mike's Place Can a liquid exist in a vacuum?
0: I gather there actually are a couple substances that kind of sort of can, but as we all know, liquids in a vacuum, you have a solid and you have a gas state. Uh, And there's a reason for that. When you think about what's actually going on in the phases, you have a a crystal lattice or similar for a solid. That's where everything is being held together by the molecular interactions, the forces there. But... Wherever you have heat, you have little things ratcheting around and bumping into each other, and those are relatively weak bonds, depending on the substance, how strong those are, and how much heat affects them. So as those bonds start vibrating more and more, it's hard for them to hold together. Now, in a vacuum, they just fall apart into a gas, but when you have pressure around them, things pushing from the other side, randomly jittering around and hitting it, that kind of keeps them bound together a little bit, and even though they want to fall apart, and there's still a little bit of molecular force going on there, and that's what we call the liquid phase. For practical purposes, you can't have one in a vacuum. So as a loose rule, uh, pretty pretty strong rule, actually, you can't have liquids in a vacuum. So,
1: Frisk says, fun question. Do you have any thoughts on Neon Genesis
0: Evangeline? Um, this for anyone who does not know, uh, the question is, do I have any thoughts on Neon Genesis Evangeline? Um this is a Japanese anime They also did some movies of that I was actually only familiar with a couple years ago um, from watching SF Debris. It's a review show I'm very fond of. You should check it out sometime. Uh, Chuck Sonnenberg's channel. But uh, he did a cover on those and got me to actually watch them. And they are, it is a strange show. And uh, uh, it's got some interesting things. I think I actually did reference it in one of the videos about being able to have cities that you can retract into the ground in case of a war. So... It, like a lot of Japanese anime, or with mecha in it, its uh, realism is dubious. <laughs> but it is an interesting show with a very strange ending. But I think it's rather legendary for a very strange ending. So that's about my only thoughts on it.
1: Nando Nando says, "Longtime fan, how would you finance an orbital ring?"
0: The same way you finance a railway track. When it comes to financing something like a megastructure like the orbital ring, it's all about throughput. Is there enough, you know, justification to put it down there? Now, it doesn't actually have to break even or make a profit when you first put it in place. That's ideal, obviously, but something like the railroad tracks, we're going from east to west, you know, there's a long-term investment on that, possibly government subsidies, possibly just people willing to bond it out to, you know, very good investments for long-term. But you don't build one of those until you need one of those. Same as if I want to go to Oregon in 1800, I walk, I take a trail, I don't build a railroad. And eventually you get to a point where there's enough traffic going there that it justifies actually building something like an orbital ring. And you, an orbital ring could be a very tiny thing. Until we actually build some, we don't know what the minimum width would be practically. But from a theoretical standpoint, they could be you know, a millimeter thick. Right. But um, the ones we tend to look at on the show, which can be anywhere from basically train track size up to you know, the size of a small nation, that is one of those things that's incrementally built as you need it. Fundamentally, it's not that they're hard to build. It's just that they're expensive to build and maintain towards putting them up there. And you're not going to want to do that until the amount of throughput you're getting is going to justify the savings and launch costs going into that. So it's one of those things where we don't really need to finance it through any special means. We just have to wait until there's a justification to start prototyping and testing it. And obviously, like many projects like that, there might be a time where we're looking at um, you know some government subsidy towards that, and that might be a good thing to be looking at. But it would be an interesting case, because the thing about an orbital ring is that uh, it's going to go over several countries, which gets you kind of a um, right-of-way issue, same as we have with the transcontinental railroads or things like that. So your funding is likely to come through a fairly complicated treaty, whether it's privately funded or not.
1: Rami Imad, what advice do you have for small science communication initiatives and content creators for the Arabic-speaking world?
0: Um... Generally, the same we'd have in a lot of places right now, there is almost all of our contents in English um, and almost all of our science contents in English, especially when it comes to space stuff because you get it mostly from NASA or the ESA. Um, and I think, in general, with those, almost every topic is free to cover again because nobody's covered in that language so if you're looking to be doing videos like the ones we cover here you know all the topics i cover on the show um even most of them are not mine originally as concepts and the ones that are mine they're free to cover again um you know give them a look introduce them to people tell them where they can find other information uh try to talk to other channels about uh using their content with their permission obviously to translate into that language on hand and then try you know adjusting it to your audience every culture's got different interests and focus and um for the big speaking world, you know, obviously, with places like Abu Dhabi, for instance, not sorry, Abu Dhabi, um, Dubai, <laughs> uh, you have uh, a great, great interest in science and technology. So, you know, see what what the future has in store for them, and what kind of big projects they'd have an interest. I'd imagine maybe mega structures would go over well there, for instance. So, adjust your content to your audience. Um, see what it is they're focused on but of course at the end of the day adjust your content to what's interesting and so keep those science topics in mind you know don't don't try to play to too much of a regional or national bias in these things keep a focus on you know good scientific endeavor and a a good future
1: steveagie92 hey love your channel your videos are always a highlight in my week have you ever been to germany and if not are you going to be here someday and will there be a fan meet
0: that is actually a doubly interesting question. Um, uh, the question is, have I ever been to Germany, and if not, am I going to be there someday, and will we have a fan meet? Um, I have been to Germany. I lived there for about three years, and amusingly, right before we had the live stream, I had a guest over. who uh, She's a US, She's immigrated to the United States in the 1960s from Germany, so we were talking about uh, Gießen, which is my adopted hometown while I was stationed in Germany. Uh, Gießen, for those who didn't know, is a little bit north of Frankfurt uh, in the Hessen province. Um, I was stationed there obviously with the United States Army and that would have been from 2003 through 2007 um, I about 14 months to deploy to Iraq um, beautiful area I love Germany um, and I can barely remember a single word of German anymore because if you uh, say when it comes to languages if you don't use it you're going to lose it and I probably remember how to say my name and you know hello I am um, but uh, as to visiting again you know you can live in a place for three years and we do a lot of sightseeing. I, I've got, spent a lot of time on train on weekends going to new places. You don't exhaust an entire country in terms of visiting places even once. Um, and so I would love to go over there and visit again. If we did something, I, I'd probably want to do something with the family, for the channel. Uh, but I don't do those very often. It was actually one of the reasons I was hoping to do the Dallas conference is I know I had a lot of fans that would be at that and I wanted to actually have a chance to actually get to meet and talk to some of them. I think the only time I actually doing sort of live meet and greet was when I was... Uh, down in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Science Center giving a talk last summer and uh, went afterwards with a few of the fans to go have dinner and uh, that was actually a very nice occasion to do so don't do too many fan meets but if we ever had one in Germany I'd, I'd be very glad to have one in Germany obviously
1: Jacob says what do you think the most contested colonization spots will be in the solar system in terms of resources and strategic choke points
0: um hmm what are the most contested resources in the solar system? What spots would be the ones people are actually fighting over? Um, that depends so much on what the market's demanding at the time. If, for instance, it's the early days where we expect asteroid mining to be focused principally on, um, you know, gold, platinum, those kind of rare earth metal uh, or rare metals. Um, in a case like that, if someone finds an asteroid that's got gold on it, that becomes contested, uh, especially because asteroids generally are part of families and we don't know for sure without doing a lot more uh, geology on them so to speak but they're probably likely to have similar resources in those families of asteroids that tend to float together so you might have a state claim on one asteroid and then people have good reason to think the asteroids clustered near it uh, kind of opening with it would have similar resources in them so you might have quite a uh furor over who got claim on those Um, but for later on, you know, the surface of any planet or major moon would be, uh, you know, like any other land, something of value.
1: This was actually a two-part question,
0: I'm sorry. The second part of the question was, is the moon the Gibraltar of space? Oh, okay, so speaking of the moon. Again, sorry, we're going to use the new setup here. Um, hmm. You don't absolutely have to use the moon as a jumping point to space. You need to use it as your most advantageous one early on as a source of uh, raw materials for building stuff in orbit and uh, raw materials for a lot of the early expansion but um so long as it's not too contested in the early days so they won't get some resources off to get started once you've got good resource development from things like the asteroid belts and other places you probably would be probably wouldn't need to actually have too much of a fight for the moon though we did do that episode battle for the moon which talks about that a little bit more so i'll refer you over to that
1: The next question is also two parts, it's from Archegor. Will AI or AIs help govern, maintain, interact in virtual reality, be it a personal VR or a public VR? Since these AI would have to be fairly intelligent, if not super intelligent, would that be enslavement of these AI?
0: (sighs) Uh, Thank you, by the way. Uh, That was one of our super chats. in the question of artificial intelligence as assistance, uh, it depends on how much intelligence do you actually need, and if you look like the early days of science fiction with robots, they almost always assumed it needed to be human level intelligence to be of much use. Um, and you know they'd have that for everything from like a spell check to just mopping your floor. I have a robot vacuum, it likes to get stuck under my couch. Uh, <laughs> it's a great thing, it does not have much intelligence. It really does not need much more. Maybe it would need to have a little bit higher intelligence to avoid getting stuck under my couch. But it doesn't need to be as smart as a person. My spell check on my computer does not need to be as smart as a person. Um, for a lot of the assistance we need, you know, so much of it's automated these days. You don't need human level intelligence to provide what used to be a human level job in many of these things, like a factory, you know, just going this to this over and over again. You get a robot that does that, it doesn't need to be very smart. If you have applications that require genuine level human intelligence or close to it and where you feel like the AI is showing a personality, um, you know, that it is a person. In that case, that obviously does raise that enslavement issue. And um, they got basically two ways you can approach that. You can say, I don't care. It will do as we tell it to. Or you can program it to like its job. Or say program it with a preference towards that job which is probably the smarter, kinder, more ethical route. But don't make it actually do that job. You know, you know, You make a space probe. And you uh, give it the basic preference to like to do space travel, but then you put it through school and educate it and ask it, would you like to be a space probe? There's a good chance it's going to say, yes, I would like to be a space probe. And if it says, no, I've always wanted to creatively write, then you say, well, okay, you, you, you go do that. And maybe it gets published in an author, or maybe it sits in despair because nobody wants to read its books. Uh, you know, that's the same as we do with anybody else in life. We can give people a certain preference growing up, but you know, if there's no free will in the decision. You know, you give them the preference, same as you would raising any kid. If they don't have that free will decision, in both a practical and literal sense, then that is enslavement. And uh, then you just have to decide, is it a person? Can it be enslaved? And uh, you know, then that's that same ethical issue we fight all the time. I don't think it's an ethical or wise choice to create anything that was forced to do its job against its will. And I don't think you really want to tie its will into doing something no matter what. So... always a tricky question or something like that but again philosophically speaking we're gonna have to wait till we actually see some real examples know you be on our best behavior or stuff like that because it's really easy to fall into a trap on something like uh, slavery so hopefully we all find an alternative to that but obviously it's a big feature a lot of the robot books in sci-fi especially asmos stories uh, if you ever read asmos robot stories read them so.
1: Here's an interesting question. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of Mars decor in here. Lucas Fortescu says, if you were on the first colony of 100 people to Mars and could take on any professional role, what would you like to be and why?
0: Oh, uh, well, my preferred role would be at Houston. Um, I, <laughs> to be honest, when it comes to would you like to go to Mars, would you like to travel to Mars, be a colonist to Mars on the moon or anything else? I like my house. I like where I live. It's hard to even get me on an airplane. That's one of the reasons why we don't do, tend to go to a lot of the conventions and things like that is, uh Travel can be fun, uh, but uh, you know, home is where the heart is, and my home is here, not Mars. Um, I'd love to see folks go off and colonize that. I'd love to be involved with that. Um, but if I had to go for some reason, I think I'd prefer to like fill my natural role as a person who suggestively tells people what they probably ought to do. And presumably, in most cases, it gets ignored. So <laughs> I would leave colonizing Mars to folks who, and I don't think we're going to have a shortage of people who want to go. So those who want to go, there's not going to be a shortage. God bless them and have fun and go there. So
1: <laughs> John Jones says, Do you have an opinion on whether molten salt reactor technology will power our near future ahead of fusion, neither, or some other?
0: Uh, molten salt reactors have the big advantage, well, they're much safer. As to whether or not we'd be using them before fusion, it just depends on whether or not we ever develop practical fusion. Um, we have a lot safer nuclear power than we're used to, and that's always an important point when it comes to things like fission. Um, not that we don't want to continue to explore the other alternative technologies. Solar, if we can make it cheap and reliable with good batteries, is always going to be your best one. Uh, it will probably even be out fusion because... It's probably a lot cheaper to make a few panels than it is to build a gigantic reactor. But um, in terms of for now, uh, molten salt reactors are very promising for that. Although we have an episode coming up on the impact of superconductors. Actually, it's our 250th episode. It'll be coming out in about two months. Uh, Whereas we point out one of the nice things about them is they let you build your power plants wherever you want and move the power there without any resistance or loss. So... You know, right now, nuclear is not too popular because, one, you want to have your power source right near where it's actually generating power. And um, that's a bit of a problem with solar, nuclear fission, things like that, is either the land is taken up or you don't want it in your backyard. NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard. Um, We hope that with fusion plants, that would be something that was safe that we could actually have in people's backyards. Uh, where superconductors will let us do a lot of these other places far away where the land is cheap or where nobody cares if the thing melts down. What Morton Reactors, the new generation of fission reactors, allows us to do, though, is put those near to people and for them to actually feel safe um, having them nearby and generating that power. So I hope that we'll see an expansion in investment, research, and actual production of these things, but we will see.
1: Randy
0: Gigante says, "When will we see the first O'Neill-type space colony?" Uh, when will we see the first O'Neill-type space colony? Not this century. The smaller ones, your things like the Gateway Foundation's uh, smaller habitat, that's really Moment as a base, not a not a, a habitat, or Caplana One uh, by uh one that we like to show on the channel so much. That's designed for. That's a much smaller station, designed for like a thousand people. Um, A big O'Neill cylinder, uh, especially the island three or four one, that's um, designed for like a quarter of a million people to live in and actually be able to farm on and support themselves. uh, Basically, a mini state or or uh, you know a country all of its own in some regards. These are not things you're going to build anytime soon. Any more than you're going to build uh, the orbital ring soon, until you've got you know, 10 million people living in space, there's no reason to be building a lone habitat for a quarter million of them. You wait until there's a big amount of people willing to live there, same as you just don't build a skyscraper until you have a city big enough to to house them. And, you know, don't assume in the early days of space once we can build these that they'd be the mainstay either. It's easy to forget that uh, uh, New York um, and Manila and Tokyo, which have most skyscrapers in any place in the world, they have about 300 each. Most of the city is not even seven stories high. You know, these are very dense places, but these bigger structures like this, they represent a big investment. And I suspect that you see many, many more small ones early on. And you only start seeing the big O'Neill's, the the ones designed to do habitats, when you're either trying, when you had a lot of development, or when you're trying for something very specific, like a non human habitat, such as a, a rainforest preserve, or something where you felt like. It was easiest to isolate this nature preserve up in space where people just couldn't get in and cause any damage. And that is probably one of your better options for building those early on since they need to be big. Whereas human habitations, we can move back and forth between them. In fact, that's another episode we have to be writing up fairly soon, which is navigating to and fro from megastructures.
1: Speaking of large habitats, Luke James of the Super Chat asks, Will new units of measure be needed for megastructures?
0: (laughs) Thank you, Luke. Um, Megastructural units... I guess it kind of depends on which one. Um, we don't really have a definition for megastructures because it got mega in there, it feels like it should be something million. Maybe it's a million meters, maybe it's a million kilometers. And the uh, difference between a million meters and a million kilometers is a million meters is I guess the width of a large state or country whereas a million kilometers is uh, the width of the Earth-Moon system. So. Um, megastructures new units probably well you're going to have something like that develop we always have anthropic kind of units develop that are more specific to -to day-to-day usage as opposed to a nice clean metric system um so i suppose you probably would have a standard size o'neill habitat i think we actually did that in the very original episode zero megastructures episode where we had a classification system for that now i think about it um you could do that you could have something like a standard size O'Neill, same as we say, a standard size suburban habitat or a typical rural town, and everybody knew about what that was. It could even be a standardized thing that they mass-produced. And then you might have units and terms of those, but I think you'd more likely have scales that were like, this is a scale that's the O'Neill Cylinder. This is your continent-sized scale of, of things like the Bishop Ring or the, um, the McKendree Cylinder. And then you'd have your scale for the truly big stuff, like a, a you know a Banks Orbital Ring or a, a Niven Ring ward or a Dyson Sphere or... That Dyson of Dyson spheres we've talked about occasionally for bulge planets. So what that scale would be, I'm sure one would develop, though.
1: Continuing that train of thought, Mr. K asks, would there be enough materials in our solar system to construct a Dyson sphere or a similar megastructure?
0: We actually have an episode on that coming up soon uh, on dismantling the solar system, though we did talk about it a bit in the Dyson spheres episode. The thing is that saying Dyson Sphere, as I would say a Dyson Sphere is not really a megastructure any more than a city is a building. It's a collection of, of these. Though you can have some that were singular structures. Um, your simplest Dyson Sphere is a bunch of mirrors out at the, uh, say, 0.1 AU from the sun, a tenth the distance that Earth is, and therefore one hundredth the surface area. And they'd only really need to be a few micron thick, just mirrors in space, right? At that point, one large asteroid would do the job. It's just going to be aluminum or silicon maybe for solar panels, and that will give you a Chicago thruster or a big power collector. Um, To do more than that, it depends on what you want. If you want to fill that entire area up with a quadrillion O'Neill cylinders, which is about how many we'd be talking about to use all of the light that the Sun was giving us, then you're going to start running low on material. Um, There's not going to be enough to do more than maybe an inch of soil if you take about something like Earth. Um, and Earth is where about half of the raw materials outside the gas giants and the sun are at. Right? Earth is very big. <laughs> so, um, If we take about Jupiter, uh, that gives us a lot more, and down the center of Jupiter, there's probably at least 10 Earth's worth of rocky material. If we took about everything, every planet, we might come up with 20 times the uh, the Earth's material, not even, right, maybe. But the sun has thousands of times the metals that earth does and that's where you get into star lifting and you can see the episode on that about that but yes you could because if nothing else what you can start doing is um taking all that extra energy and all the extra hydrogen you can't build with and running it through super colliders and you start dimming the sun a bit by doing that since you're decreasing the mass of the sun and that means you need less material to englobe it in which case, no matter what the star is, somehow, some way, you can produce a, a complete Dyson Sphere of any type you want around it, with enough time, patience, and effort, but that's true of many things. Anyway, we're going to go to break and we'll take more of your questions in just a moment. So while we're on break grabbing a drink and a snack, I just wanted to mention that we hit 500,000 subscribers a week back and that I'm very grateful to all of you for the show's continued growth and success. Indeed, we had a rather large growth spike while I was away on my honeymoon, and to all the folks who recently joined us, welcome on board. One downside though was that I had been considering a celebratory episode for the occasion, as we did for 100,000 and 250,000 subscribers, but it was late April by the time I had a chance to notice we were close and then I was off getting married and going on that honeymoon, and we had a surge of growth so we hit 500,000 sooner than I anticipated and could prepare an episode for. And We also hit the benchmark on Memorial Day weekend, and as a veteran I tend to be a bit distracted on that holiday too, so I decided we'd just do a poll for a new episode to commemorate the benchmark instead. My wife Sarah, hearing me grumble a bit about not being able to prepare an episode for it in time and going through a few drafts for it I decided not to go forward with, surprised me right after we hit 500,000 with a balloon and some mint chocolates, which is generally my favorite candy and dessert flavors. She's been a very welcome help on the channel since we got back and started settling in, helping me set the studio up and test stuff, and she is one of many folks who helped make SFIA what it is today, although obviously the dearest to my heart. There's a ton of folks who volunteer to help edit scripts, brainstorm ideas, and make animations or music for the show, and you can see them in the credit roll every episode, but a lot of folks don't make that roll since it's just who worked on that specific episode. Whether it's our patrons and sponsors helping keep the show funded, or our social media moderators helping keep our forums fun and civil, or many of my friends online or locally who help me with ideas or motivation, SFIA would not be the same without them if it existed at all. Somewhat ironically, before the virus came in and shook everything up, I was scheduled to give a talk and accept an award this weekend down at Dallas at the International Space Development Conference, and that event got cancelled or postponed indefinitely. So I couldn't accept that award in person. I'm not a big one for public speeches, but I regretted missing that one because I wanted to publicly thank all the folks I just mentioned, as by rights, that award is theirs too. And in lieu of that, I want to say so now and say the same thing about hitting 500,000 subscribers, Of course the folks I want to thank the most is all those subscribers, we very literally could not be celebrating today without you, and I'm honored you find the show interesting enough to spend the time watching it and I hope we'll be able to keep your minds and imaginations intrigued for many years to come. With all that said, let's get back to the show. We got the uh, wide shot for just a moment here, Uh, we have one question from Treble, Uh, we have multiple cameras set up by the way. was a follow up on that would disassembling mercury to create a Dyson sphere in the distant future? What would be my feeling toward that? And I guess it kind of comes into the disassembling of things in general. And we do talk about that more in that episode uh, that will be coming out in a couple of months. But uh, there's nothing on mercury. I mean, mercury is an interesting place, but if I can turn mercury into 10 million Earth's worth of living area or something like that, or 10,000 Earth's worth of living area, then why not? You know, that's turning something into something else if you get more out of it. To me, that's mostly advantageous. Rocks are nice, but I don't count them as as valuable as life. So just switching away the other ones for those of you who are curious about the studio, we've got the uh, old webcam from the screens up over here. So uh, anyway, just the general notion on that is uh, that I perfectly found with assembling Mercury or any other planet other than Earth and potentially even Earth if it came down to it. Right.
1: The next question is from Lewis Kyle. What do you think about SpaceX's Starship? Fully reusable, orbital refueling, super cheap, 150 tons of payload, etc. Do you think we are about to see a revolution on space exploration?
0: Uh, in the question of SpaceX's new spaceship, um, I think we've already seen one. I mean, we saw it yesterday with the launch. This is, you know, when you date an epoch, when you date a period for uh, uh, of any human, in, you know, endeavor you can't date them until a couple centuries afterwards and even then you tend to argue about them like when did the renaissance start you ask a bunch of different scholars get a bunch of different answers when did the information age start when did the industrial revolution start when's the computer age when's the space age actually began was it with sputnik uh was it before sputnik was it with the space station being one where we had people continuously in orbit or the apollo missions when we landed on the moon um SpaceX has been pushing the boundary on this for a decade now, and they are making amazing progress, and I think we'll see other people start leaping in there more enthusiastically, as we already do with things like Blue Origins. Um, will it mark the beginning of things like space tourism, or uh, much larger space stations? I hope so. I'd like to see us much more aggressively going for those paths, but we'll see. A lot of times progress will be set back by various crises, and, and you know, it takes good times a lot of times to invest, although sometimes necessity or you know it can push things forward too so fingers crossed and i hope so
1: isaac bordeaux asks have you ever read rendezvous with rama by arthur c Clarke?" p.s i love your videos
0: (laughs) thank you isaac um arthur c Clarke, who is actually our book of the month for june uh well not the author of the month for june because we have quite a few books by him i think he actually was our book of the month for rendezvous with rama a few years back or a couple years back That is a really good book. The sequels uh, that he wrote with Gendry Lee, uh, first one's okay. Other ones, some people enjoy them. Uh, I've liked the original best, though. Rendezvous with Rom is one of the classics of science fiction. If you haven't read it, pick up a copy. It is basically an example of a generation ship um, based on what they had going on back then. We actually talk about that a little bit in the generation ship series first episode um, in terms of how kind of with the progress of technology we probably wouldn't be looking at something like a rama as international interstellar colony ark. but the basic idea there would be you take something like an Oniosondo, a big self-enclosed habitat and use it as a spaceship um and that allows you to do these you know thousand year long voyages and keep a population in mind and we're always would be like genetic uh bottlenecking if you've got only a few thousand people on a ship aren't going to genetically bottlenecks so you could build a much bigger spaceship however you can keep frozen stores of dna uh to be you know you know just putting into your population to avoid that bottlenecking you'd have gene therapy to avoid issues with that bottlenecking and you can even store dna digitally and print it off it's very expensive too right now but it's a completely functional technology so you don't actually have to worry about that genetic bottlenecking issue quite so much still as you saw in exporting earth with a lot of other species if you're trying to carry earth with you to a new plant to uh, plant it somewhere uh bigger is always better so But as the book itself, Arthur C. Clarke is just a great writer. So pick it up.
1: Zachary says, I love your pie tie, bro. Can you comment on the pie tie?
0: Um, I'm trying to remember when I actually got it. It was... I don't like to wear ties very much, uh, dating back to at least one occasion where I got one stuck in a door and I almost half-straggled on it. So I tend not to wear ties too much, but uh, if you're just wearing a button-up short by itself, it doesn't quite look right. So I thought I'd, I'd give myself a, 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 pie tie, you know, a bolo tie. Those, those look a little bit nicer. Um, but um, I thought it should be something a little bit more thematic. I suppose I might technically count as a farmer these days, but really not so much. I, I ranch blueberries, so maybe that's, that's the one. <laughs> but... Um, I know, I just the pie ties was one that kind of caught me and seemed appropriate for the show. So, um, as to uh, where I got it? I actually can't remember. I mean, I assume I picked it on Amazon or something like that. But uh, eh, I'm fond of it, and there's no real good backstory other than it looked nice.
1: <laughs> i Mars. Will wind power be viable in higher latitudes on Mars?
0: Um, <clears throat> kind of an important thing to remember about stuff like wind power is that you know, When we talk about dust storms on Mars or all the wind on Mars, it's not just the speed the stuff is moving at, it's how much actual material is hitting you. you know, this all comes down to individual particles striking, in this case, a wind turbine. Um, it's not the speed of the air that, that really matters to that, it's the amount of actual force being applied to that fan to turn it. So Mars often has very high speeds of wind, but also has very little actual air, and so there's not that much going to be pushing on the fan to turn it. Uh, that said yeah you probably could get wind in place of that um i'd have to defer somebody who's more familiar with the actual dynamics of wind turbines nowadays say how well that would be something we could switch over to using there but i would tend to bet your better bet there would probably still be solar although some wind during the dust storms when the solar is covered might be better but i think everyone knows my preference on this either power satellites beaming it down to the surface or good old-fashioned fission power plants so uh could it work probably
1: GameSpot Live has a three part question, so bear with me. He says, What are your thoughts on genetic manipulation to make people fit into different environments or have different traits? How would we go about this? Is it moral?
0: You could make an argument um, that this is something we already do, and that's an important one with a lot of the ethical questions we come up with, with in, in science with new technologies. We say, is this ethical? And I say, I don't know if I can answer if it's ethical or not. I just try to ask, is this a new question? Um, you know, with something like cybernetics, is it is it ethical to give someone a cyborg arm? Most of us would say nowadays, yeah, if they're missing arm, it's perfectly fine to do that. Um, but of course we already do pacemakers and things like that we already do glasses um, cochlear implants things like that when it comes to things like genetic engineering i don't know if it's actually ethical to genetically engineer people or animals or maybe it's okay to do animals or maybe it's okay to do plants but not people the thing is we've already been doing it right um, we've been engaging in genetic engineering of our plants our crops our livestock and our people in many cases too for centuries People aren't so good at cooperating for that, but you know, we've certainly done a lot of breeding with that kind of intent in mind for livestock. Um, so the question isn't, is genetic manipulation when we get the technology for it ethical or not? It's the question is, now that we can do it for sure, uh, now that we can definitely do it with a very designed intent, isn't any better or worse than we, we've been trying to do it for centuries and with mixed results? You know, um, So I don't know that that's really the right question to ask. In general, I wouldn't want to do anything that was creating something like a caste system. We see that in science fiction a lot, where you've had, like, they breed for warlords and diplomats, and they got the, the, the scientist caste and the creative caste, something like that. I would not want to see something like that happen, personally. I think we see a bit of an example of that in, I believe it was Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, um, where they have these the, the alphas, the betas, and the gammas, and the deltas, um, and... Grain of salt because I'm not sure if I'm remembering that book that well. But uh, ethically, I don't think there's anything wrong with manipulating DNA in humans or anyone else in and of itself. Um, the S it comes kind of down to where you land on is located okay a breed with intent to produce a given trait or to keep a trait or enhance a trait. Um, and if it's okay to do it with animals, then presumably it's okay to do it in a lab nowadays with animals. If it's okay to do it with the people, then presumably that's still going to be your opinion and with the more advanced technology. I don't know where I'd land on a lot of these issues myself, and I'm sure we all have different opinions, and it's one of those ones where we kind of have to see how the technology rolls out with that, decide whether or not it would be. So.
1: Jim Morrison says, do you believe colonization will be the domain of governments or private companies?
0: Will colonization space colonization be the domain of governments or private companies um you know it all depends so much on on how big those efforts need to be personally i would hope uh, as SpaceX has shown us that we would see a lot of private groups doing that um, even if we are assuming for the moment a non-capitalist setup, you would still hope that a lot of private groups would be able to do that small-scale individually. Inside of a capitalist setup, you'd certainly hope small businesses would be able to get in space. They wouldn't just need people like SpaceX doing it, but you know, you have a mom-and-pop shop. They own a space cafe on the moon or something like that. We want to widen the doors for human endeavor. We don't want to be limited. Um For now, it's going to remain something that has a heavy government involvement, and that will presumably never end because once you have a big development up in space you presume we have governments they are doing stuff in space um but uh, i don't think it's an and or question i think that your best result is going to be both and not just mega corporations and mega governments you know that you have small countries um that you might have individual townships and counties or villages or cities uh that have their own investments up in space that you would have not just big companies uh, with billion dollar budgets doing it but uh you know small startups of um, you know family farms or the equivalent of the small business or family restaurant in space so that would be my preference as to what will happen I hope that is the one but I, I we'll have to wait and see how the technology rolls out
1: Victor says hello Isaac I really like your work would you be interested in doing sci-fi book reviews in the future not precisely from a literary viewpoint but your ideas regarding the different concepts
0: I have thought about reviewing sci-fi books from time to time, and we do actually do that on the show. Um, You know, We do that a little bit for the book of the month where I talk about the concepts, Uh, but in general, the issue is that I tend to feel that if you haven't got something good to say, uh, especially when it's going on the internet, don't say anything at all. So usually we only do books that I am um, very, very fond of, Um, but... I would say that uh, if you're looking for very good reviews of, of science fiction, I think I mentioned S.F. Dupree earlier on the show, check them out.
1: Uh, Pix Pirate says, what do you think of Kyrgyzat's solar engine?
0: I actually don't know what that is. <laughs> I've been not keeping up on things the last couple of months. Uh, I'll have to go check that out at some point in time. I imagine it's one of their new videos, but... Uh, they usually are very good with the science. I remember mean, they did the Black Hole Bomb episode, and that was quite a fun one with good science. So I'll have to check that out and get back to you.
1: Elliot says, Isaac, you should do a TV show with the guys from Event Horizon and Cool Worlds.
0: You know, I can't remember the name of the guy who runs the Cool Worlds show, but we have spoken briefly. And, of course, Event Horizon, that's John Michael Godier's channel and John's good friend. But uh, I don't know what we do for a TV show on something like that. I think we all kind of like doing our own thing a lot here on YouTube. we got a lot of flexibility, so... Interesting idea, but probably not anytime soon.
1: Sci-Fi by Alan Crowley says, Isaac, thanks for what you do.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Alan. I think we're speeding up a bit so we can get through some more questions before the end of the show.
1: (laughs) Mario's, uh... Mario says, artificial planets versus terraforming. Which strategy is more viable for future colonization?
0: Uh, artificial planets versus terraforming. Um, if you've got a paradise planet like Earth you just stumble across, one that's perfect for terraforming, go for it. It's going to have an extra value as well. But in general, as we always say, it's so much easier, faster, and, and in many cases, better to be creating an artificial habitat tailored to the gravity, weather, etc. that you want, as opposed to a place like Mars where... The gravity is going to be very low unless you dump a black hole into the middle of it or something like that so I think artificial habitats are where 99.9999% of the population is going to live in uh, in a couple of millennia unless most of them live on computer chips we'll see
1: Super Chat number Plastic Pinocchio says are there any other practical methods of generating artificial gravity without using centrifugal forces and thank you for all the amazing
0: content <laughs> you're welcome and thank you as well um ways of generating artificial gravity without using centrifugal force uh you've really only got the two that we know of right now you can use a lot of mass or you can lose a lot of acceleration which is essentially what centrifugal uh, acceleration is doing though you could do it linearly with a spaceship too that uses a lot of fuel uh probably way too much but mass wise um we might come up with some really dense materials uh, compared to things like osmium even, but otherwise your best bet would probably be a micro black hole that you created stuck in a box and put at the center of whatever artificial planet you are building, or then you have to carry all that mass around though so it's not really ideal for a spaceship, so rotating gravity does look like the, the way of the future as well.
1: Matthew says, how long do you think it will be before we have a human colony around another star or on an exoplanet?
0: Couple centuries uh first you got the travel time second we will not send out a mission like that unless it's to be opponent base. I mean, in terms of a manned mission you can't send them there and ever have to get support for them it's probably the same thing that's going to happen with mars we might go to mars land the flag uh, you know land there plant the flag gather some rock samples but i think there's a much higher probability of a place like mars when we go to do it we do it as opponent base from day one because it almost has to be since they'll be there for months and it's multi-year travel time that's even worse in the case of interstellar travel. You send them out there, they're not coming home. Not for a very long time at best. These are journeys that, even if they can move at the speed of light, will take decades. But probably a decade to a century to get there is your best bet with anything we could come up with, which would probably be like laser propulsion. Uh, so you're saying they're from day one for keeps. To do that, you need to make sure you have all that colonial effort designed, all that equipment, all that life support, all that environmental engineering down pat. Which means you test it which means you test it in the solar system you know of doing this in small moons or asteroids or cloud habitats or things out the kuiper belt and seeing what real problems come up what day-to-day problems come up with the technology the lifestyles and then when you've had a chance to prove this over decades all these artificial habitats and things like that then you send your spaceship until then you do unmanned probes and i don't know that there's any other practical or realistic way to do that so that takes a bit up time though so think centuries
1: AFN Acapella says, with Crew Dragon docking to the ISS and Tom Cruise talking about filming in orbit, what do you think will be the first commercial infrastructure in orbit? Movie, studio, hotel, satellite farm?
0: All of the above. Um, your first one's probably likely to be a modular space station that's got some rooms or space devoted to those. And so you have, you know, someone's going to want to go film a movie up there. you to just be able to say they filmed a movie up there. Uh, even if it's just a little pulse of it, as opposed to using the vomit comet for their low-gravity stuff. Um, someone's going to want to grow some hydroponics, you know, hydroponics up there to do some lettuce. They want to do it from a scientific test perspective, but they say, well, we need a big sample anyway. We need to grow several hundred pieces of lettuce in order to actually see what happens with it, so we might as well serve them to the guests. So you see something like that. I've been given over to that. Um, same for a lot of the tourism. You're going up there to visit the hydroponic farm or to visit the movie set in many cases or to just float around and see your gravity. I think your first big commercial space station uh, is going to be multi-purpose from the get-go as a design feature. It's not going to be a specific one. And then you get specific stuff later down the road.
1: GameSpot Live says, if you were in charge of founding an intergalactic community, what would you do? What government system would you use?
0: If you haven't... Well, intergalactic. How would you run an intergalactic community or how would I run an intergalactic community? Um, since the... Without a fast and light communication system, it would take you millions of years to send any message to uh, your various colonies. I would say you would not run that at all. But by default, I would always prefer to run something democratically. You know, you'd have your local galaxy senate it with its local clusters and so forth.
1: Um. Um, I-, I can't pronounce this name, but it's Super Chat member Z says I know it's a bit late, but just wanted to say congratulations on tying the knot. Could mega-engineering cause environmental problems in space?
0: Um, hmm. Let's see. Could mega-engineering cause mega engineering cause environmental problems in space? Space debris is your big one. Radiation is a potential issue, too, though that's a hard one in space because there's so much of it. Really, your biggest one is space debris. Um, that could cause environmental problems on planets in the sense of space debris, constant rainy orbits, or things blocking light. Um... And uh, I guess that would be the biggest concern on that one. Also, thank you for the, uh, the uh, wedding. Um, congratulations. I don't know of anything besides uh, space debris or just moving where the lights landing that would be likely to cause environmental damage, though. That's how I can think of on that one.
1: Dalek Lord says, would it be possible to have a station to build ships in space rather than on Earth? And would there be advantages to building rockets and ships in
0: space? The ideal is always to build them up in space in the first place, but you need to have the manpower and infrastructure there first. That's why the moon is such a, a great potential place for doing that at. <clears throat> if you've got all the robots up there doing the work remotely, or if you've got big crews up there, then you build those spaceships there. You don't build a spaceship designed to land on a planet. You build a spaceship designed to take little shuttles that would go down from orbit or to the outpost, which would have its own space elevator, wherever it would be. Um, but yeah, building spaceships in space is basically the biggest next step. Whether or not we do that before or after we go to Mars is a different story, but uh, in you always want to be trying to build your stuff up there, so you don't have to try to drag it through our, our atmosphere with its payload limits. Um,
1: Slavic Prime says, Isaac, if technology for immortality was available, would you be immortal?
0: <clears throat> immortal? No. Uh, I would not want to live forever uh i wouldn't mind living a few thousand years or a few million years but uh i that always strikes me as uh for those of you who are familiar with uh things going on with wishes and genies and lamps or rings of three wishes of uh, one of those ones will be careful what you wish for i do not think i'd want to live forever uh i would be quite happy to live several million years potentially too, though. but uh yeah <laughs>
1: The Naked Monk super super chat member says, assuming wormholes could be stabilized and traversable, how would you define the destination? How would you link specific points in space and or time? Keep up the great work. Hmm. Uh,
0: Well, first of all, thank you. Um, If wormholes could be traversable, uh, and, and we're going to assume for the moment that you mean wormholes is traversable inside our universe as opposed to ones going to another universe or similar. Um, <clears throat> hmm. I mean I suppose you'd use something of a network system I think they played with something along that idea in uh, in the Expanse series where you don't have just like one Deep Space Nine style big wormhole that one goes and travels to rather you'd have big junction nodes where you'd uh, you know a hundred wormholes that come into one system and people go to that one and go to another one and you have junctions and Basically, you probably try to lay it out a lot like you had uh, railway development other things. Hubs, places where there are tons of them and ones where you have much more um, motion through them. Uh, a thing with wormholes, again, we don't know much about them, but they would have a width. And that depends on the mass you're building them with. So you could make ones that were skinnier and could handle smaller spaceship, And others you could put through much wider volumes of material. So basically just your loose node or hub will, um, network, I think, would be the most logical way to do it.
1: The next question is from Don Giovanni. <clears> <throat> Could you have a 1G habitat on the moon by running a circular train tilted inward?
0: Um, the interesting thing about centrifugal force on, on plants or large moons is that if you've already got it in place, you're going to be tilting a bit. You've got the gravity from the moon pointing you down, and then you've got your centrifugal rotation pointing you to the side as you're new down. And so that comes out at a bit of an angle. The thing is, while we tend to think I could do a bit of a bowl shape and live inside that... Only on a place like Mars or Venus would actually be much like a bowl. Everywhere else is going to be more like a very, very deep vase. Um, You can do that on the moon. You can have a bit of an angle to it. And then once you get the thing much smaller than the moon, uh, you really don't need to do it all. Maybe just a little bit of tilting to avoid it. But uh, that would work. The circular track approach would certainly work. And that might not be a bad approach. Uh, It's just that you're only going to have that train that's running around doing that and still have that tilted floor. I think in a case like that, you'd still go ahead and do the more the bowl shape or orange shape thing than just one spinning around cult. Um, and that's just the same thing as whether you do like a ring habitat or a cylinder habitat. The ring's skinny and wide, the cylinder has a lot more area to it. So it just depends on how big of a habitat you need. You've got that minimum rotational radius. If you need a small one, you keep it skinny. Otherwise, you build big.
1: Afn in a acapella says, What real earthbound space, futurism, sci-fi-related places are on your bucket list? Which fictional ones would make the list? Hmm.
0: Which earthbound places are on my bucket list? I actually got to go to a lot of them already, but I think I was saying that I want to actually go see Mount Rushmore in person one of these days in the Grand Canyon. I've never been there, so... Uh, I don't like to put those on my bucket list, though, because that implies you're never going to get there. Um i still have a lot of sightseeing to do in europe i wouldn't mind getting done i'd love to see the pyramids um but as to fictional locations um i would not mind visiting the moon i would i would very much like to do that almost but visit not live as to fictional ones um not warhammer 40k i would not want to be in that place ever though it's fun to read about um the Star Trek setting, of course, is very happy, or our uh, ENM Banks culture series, again, very, very happy place to live with lots of resources. So, most of the interesting ones that are dystopian, I would not want to visit. Most of the ones which were very paradise-like, yes. <laughs> uh, I think we're pretty much out of questions at the moment, or I think we got one more. Okay. Um, AstroDCR asked, how much is your mic? I do not know off the top of my head how much I paid for the mic I'm currently using. Uh, I've had it for a while. I've actually gone through a couple of different microphones uh, over the series run. And I've had a couple I've gotten since I got the current one that I did not like and either returned or gave to friends because uh, they were allegedly higher quality ones or gave better sound, but I didn't actually turn out to like them quite as much. This one I don't think was very expensive, though. I know I need to get another one so that Sarah can actually read the questions louder next time, uh, which has been a very great help. Um, but uh, eh, I suppose you probably have to google it up i think the brand name is on the side i think though uh and um i th- think we have time for one more question uh follow up from the naked monk um says thanks for the answer i didn't mean the schema uh, this is in regard to the wormhole network uh i meant how would you target a specific endpoint like do you point a wormhole at a destination or aim in a specific direction good question we don't know it depends on theory The idea is if I create a wormhole at one place, how do I get the wormhole to the destination? Um, One way we know under certain theories that would work is you create both ends of the wormhole right next to each other and then you drag the ends to where you want them to be. This is problematic since uh, most theories for wormholes say they need to weigh at least as much as Jupiter, if not several billion times more. Such being the case, it's a slow process. You have to go sublight to get there and it's a lot of mass to hang around but uh if you had a way to actually aim where it was going to to pop up which potentially is possible it's hard to say um then uh, that would certainly be your ideal one as it presumably lets you go to those places originally faster than light um but most of the evidence we have where wormholes are concerned which is of course strictly theoretical anyway would say that you probably have to make both junctions at the same location and then take the other end to your destination which means it doesn't let you colonize faster than light uh But it does mean that once you get your colony in place, you can travel from point A to point B, fashion light. Although, as I've mentioned, on many occasions, I don't expect us to ever actually get functioning fashion light travel, wormholes or not, inside this universe. I keep my fingers crossed a little bit more, but for the option of maybe traversable wormholes to other universes. But we'll have to see, obviously, as theory develops on that more. And uh, I guess this is probably a good time to go ahead and cut off. If we missed your question, please leave it in the comments below, and I'll try to get back to it later this evening or tomorrow. And uh, for everybody who donated on Super Chat, thank you very much. I hope we got you a question or comment, too. And again, leave them in the chat if we missed them. As for everybody else, thank you for joining me today. Sorry we had some technical glitches at the beginning, and uh, we will see you next month about the same time and place. So thank you for joining us, and have a great afternoon. So that will wrap us up for the day, I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you Thursday.